From Hamilton Place Strategies in Washington, D.C., this is the HPS Insights Podcast. Welcome to HPS Insights. Uh, it's a podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, analyzing current events impacting business and political communities. I'm your host, Tony Fratto, uh, founder and partner of Hamilton Place Strategies. And I have to tell you, I'm just, I'm so thrilled today to host uh, Anna Gifty Opoko Ajaman, uh, who is my friend and uh, researcher, writer, science communicator, activist, uh, co-founder of uh, the amazing uh, Sadie Collective. Uh, and and now today, and what I'm really excited to talk about it most recently, um, is the editor of a brand new book that's coming out uh, on February 1st, uh, The Black Agenda, Bold Solutions for a Broken System. Uh, uh, and I'm just so excited to be able to talk to uh, Anna, to be able to talk to you about it and to welcome you here today and to share your insights on uh, the importance of this. I had... I. I'm not even through the entire book because, you know, one of the things I love about the book uh, by it's, and I should note that it's, uh, uh, you'll be able to buy it. I'm going to say this a few times on this, uh, on this podcast, you buy it at Amazon and uh, other, uh, you know, online retailers and uh, lots of other places. Um, It's, it's up by St. Martin's press. And, but one of the things I love about it is uh, the range of topics uh, and that they're all essays. And so one of the, what I love about books of uh, essays like that is I can always come, I could pick around. I don't have to go from beginning to end. Um, uh, but Anna, welcome. And, uh, and thank you. Tell me like the story behind putting this book together and uh, what the inspiration uh, was. And, uh, and then, and then I want to dive into uh, lots of pieces of it. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, first and foremost, Thank you for having me. You're such a dear friend. I'm such a huge fan of HPS. And so I appreciate you just having me on the podcast today. Yeah, the story of this coming together is pretty organic, actually. So as you all know, like I'm a young researcher, specifically a Black woman. And so around the time when the pandemic started, there was a lot of news that was going on around racial disparities. Um, And it was the conversation was really being had over Twitter, and less so in the mainstream media. And so I I, as someone who's a consumer of news and consumer of political news, was kind of confused why the Black voices that were being sort of, you know, in conversation on my Twitter timeline were not necessarily being reflected in the mainstream. And so I said, hmm, I wonder if it's because people don't know where to look or they're just straight up ignoring Black experts. Um, But one thing that really caught my eye was that I was looking at a major news outlet and they have an op-ed section that they regularly have guest contributors to and they have a popular column. And I think you can guess what that mainstream media is. And so essentially, I did a quick snap analysis and I said, okay, let me look at sort of the essays that mentioned economists over the last month, which was at that point, March 2020, and see how many of those economists are Black. They cited about 42 economists, none of them were black. And I thought that was really significant. And so if you think about the fact that we knew that COVID was going to disproportionately affect black communities at the time, and that it was already um, raising the unemployment rate for black American groups and other um, marginalized groups, it's actually very confusing as to why those voices were left out of the discourse. And so essentially around that time, I actually ended up getting signed by my wonderful agent, Leela Kimboli. And so... I kind of tossed an idea to her, like, oh, what if we just like put all these black experts in a book? Like, would that like sell? And she was like, Anna, that's brilliant. (laughs) So basically over the course of two or three months, we fleshed out this idea of the black agenda and 
We put together a proposal that we then pitched only to the big five publishers, and it happily landed with one of them, Macmillan, uh, which their imprint, St. Martin's, is who's publishing the book today. Um, the other thing that also contributed to me bringing something like this together is that I'm actually quite visible for someone who is a Black person in economics. And it's interesting because I'm actually just starting my career. The reason why a lot of people know my work is because of the Sadie Collective and the op-eds that I've written in the past. And so I noticed that a lot of news outlets were coming to me for comments on the economy and how it intersects with racial identity, even though there are Black economists who have been doing this work for decades. And so I thought to myself, what if we put something together in which we honored Black economists and policy wonks and that later in developed and evolved into something that became more encompassing of different areas of expertise, as the book has shown you today. Yeah, it certainly has. I mean, it, it, and you're right. You know, you know, so I mean, you know that my background in economics and I'm like I'm watching, you know, CNBC every day. Right. And, and I sort of noted noticed this also as this was, you know, as as attention to black voices was growing in 2020 in the wake of Black Lives Matter and George right. Floyd. And, you know, there were, you know, news organizations and others who started looking for some new voices. Our friend Lisa Cook was one of them Absolutely. who I thought started seeing regularly on CNBC, which was great. Mm-hmm. And my old colleague from Treasury Department, Nada Esa, uh, who's at Georgetown, uh, you know, would, uh, would, you know, start doing some. And so I was proud of the CNBC was started looking and, and finding um, and hopefully that's something that, that continues. But the first thing I thought of when I saw your book was, again, it's not just economics. It's a range of public policy right. areas, education, healthcare, climate, technology, wellness, uh, uh, criminal justice reform, yes. you know, voting. Yes. There's like, there, it's, like, it's packed with experts in those. And the first thing I thought of was, this isn't just a book of essays, like the viewpoints on it are really important, but it's a resource for it to go to yep. producers yep. everywhere. Like yes, looking for the book. Here's your book. You know, yeah. when, you, when that issue comes up, yeah. and um, and like this is like here's your here's where here's a starting place for you to find um, you know find the experts and you know you think you think it'd be able you know they'd be able to find them. Um, you know, on their own, but it's like, whatever, let's not, mm-hmm. let's not think about what, you know, why they can't, let's provide the solution to them. And I right. think that's what you've done. Right. That's exactly right. Um, the story I love to tell people about this is, so I was blessed to be invited to marketplace. And the funny story around that is that when they invited me to be on the show, I had no idea I was talking to that marketplace. So I had gotten an email that was like, oh, Marketplace wants to talk. And I was like, okay, like, I don't know who these people are, but I'm happy to talk to them. Um, and so I actually was speaking to Kai Rizendahl and I had no idea that it was the Marketplace associated with NPR. And so he had said something like, you know, man, you got a lot of work ahead of you. And I'm like, no, we do. Like, we both have a lot of work ahead of us. Yeah. Not knowing that I was correcting someone basically on air. <laughs> I had no idea about that. Um, but he took to that and he was very excited about it. Um, But ultimately, at the end of that interview, they then said, so, you know, we would love to feature more Black folks. Who should we go to next? And the people that I mentioned are folks you've heard on Marketplace. So Janelle Jones was one of the individuals I mentioned. I said, look, she has this idea called Black Women Best. I love it. It's such an an interesting way of thinking about public policy in the economy. And I think there needs to be more coverage on it. I'd also mentioned Benga Ajalore, who's also in the book. He talked about sort of, you know, um, the rural South, specifically the Black Belt, and sort of talking about how the economic issues there overlap with the other sections of the book. Um, and I think I had mentioned one other person that is not coming to mind at the moment, but I mentioned all these Black experts and I said, here's some names. Let me know if, you know, any of them resonate. Turns out they had invited 
all of those individuals in later episodes. And I think for me, that was like very affirming, like, wait a minute, people listen to what I say. <laughs> so what, like this, this book is really going to be a great resource. Um, and even just bringing it onto certain people's radar, as you mentioned, I think folks in the media are fi- going to find this as a really helpful resource moving forward, especially since, you know, since the wake of the summer 2020 protests, people really do want to center Black voices more so. Um, obviously, I would say that's a little bit short-lived as empirical evidence has shown, but my hope is that a book like this will sort of revive that interest and yeah. really have some concrete names that can get pushed out into the main, mainstream in the public discourse. I, I've, I have so many questions for you on that. I mean, I, one, of them is, one of them is just of context for for these voices and for you and for you also as a you know as a black woman and a scholar and and um and, and voice on so many of these things is that the sort of tension right it's like you know so i look at all of these names and i read the read read a lot of their work and some i knew of their their scholarship before you know before the book um was just that you know they are black experts um they're also black experts on the, the black experience in those sectors but they're also experts period right so and and so that. yeah so i always think of the like the sort of the tension we absolutely want so for example you know uh we want dr marshall shepherd talking about the the um climate uh, weather gap yeah right the climate uh the climate racial gap which is it's, uh, you know it's really in- it's very interesting it needs mm-hmm. attention we know that this is about climate change impacting you know disproportionately black uh black communities but he's also a climate expert, right? There's like, there's, right, right. just broader, just not just on uh, on the question of, mm-hmm. but I always think of that, that, that the, and this, that question I have for you is just on this tension of, you know, we want these experts coming on and talking about uh, how these really big issues are impacting the black community because the impact in many cases, I think in all the cases in this book are in fact disproportionately mm-hmm. uh, impacting the black community. But they're, they're also uh, experts that go beyond just the, how it impacts the black community. And so just how to think about it, uh, think about them that way as, as they emerge as, as growing voices. Yeah, I, I really love this question. Um, I always say that there's a difference between studying racial inequality and living through it. Mm. And we, in black experts, you actually have individuals who can carry both, right? They have that lived experience that further contextualizes the questions that they ask about the world. And I think that those are the experts that should really be leading the charge on a lot of these issues because they understand how the worst outcome of these issues impacts the most vulnerable. And they have literally thought about the solutions and how we address that moving forward. And so to your point, that's exactly the way the book is constructed. I've constructed it in different sections to show people it's not just black people are experts on black issues. They're issues on these, they're, excuse me, they're experts on these big topics that we've been talking about for the last five, six, 10 years or so. And so it's really important that when you want to bring in a climate expert, you're considering some of these names moving forward because these individuals are experts first and foremost in their own line of expertise, be it climate, healthcare, wellness, whatever. And then they're Black, right? And so their Blackness, as it intersects with their expertise, then gives you sort of this fuller picture of what does it mean to study your own lived experience within the context of this sort of policy issue, right? So what I love about the climate chapter, you brought that up, is that you're hearing from, I believe, 
five experts. And what I love about the way it's constructed, and that was accidental, by the way, <laughs> just like sometimes you put things together, you're like, oh, wait, that worked out really great. Um, right. It starts off really big with Dr. Marshall Shepard's essay talking about the climate weather gap. What's going on? We already know about this from the science. He says, well, let's take the science and bring it down to the policy level. Hurricane Katrina was essentially our preview into how climate change was going to affect black and brown communities. And he was saying this, you know, back in like 2006, right? And so he's citing the evidence that he's been able to construct. And that then trickles down into sort of what's happening with the climate justice movement. And that's where you hear some of the younger voices saying, you know, we need to do better with centering black voices in those spaces. And so I think for me, um, I look at this book as a way to make a case for why Black experts are not just experts on race talk or race topics, as mm -hmm. Dr. Tressie McMillan Cotton talks about in her forward, but rather they are experts on particular issues with a deeper understanding of how it affects the Black community. That's perfect. It's a, and I think it's such an important context. Um, I, I want to um, take a break and we'll come back and, and talk about uh, maybe a couple, couple sections of the book and some of the things that maybe surprised us. I'll tell you something that I, le I learned, uh, a specific one thing I learned uh, in the book, but we'll come back after this break. Uh, you're listening to the uh, HPS Insights podcast. We have uh, the, the editor of uh, Black Agenda, uh, Anna Gifty Opoko Ajaman with us uh, today, and we'll be back right after this. Economics has a diversity problem. The Sadie Collective is the first and only organization dedicated to addressing the pipeline and pathway problems for Black women in economics, finance, data science, and public policy. Named after the first African American to earn a PhD in economics, the Sadie Collective seeks to support and inspire the next generation of Black women in these career fields. To learn more about the collective and how you can get involved, email sadiecollective at hamiltonps.com or visit sadiecollective.org. Back on HBS uh, Insights, I'm Tony Frado. We have Anna Gifty Opoko Ajaman um, with us talking about her uh, book, The Black Agenda, a uh, book of amazing uh, Black experts on all of the big issues of the day. And Anna, I mean, honestly, I, I actually have not gotten to everything, you know, to every section in the book. Um, I've like, I skipped a couple parts of it and some I was able to get in deeper on. And because there is so much thinking, I mean, like it's, I'm a fast reader, but there's so much to think about in it that I end up going back and, uh, and uh, rereading parts of it. Something I, I honestly, I'm a little embarrassed about is something I never heard before yeah. um, was in, um, I think it was Monica McLemore's yeah. segment. I had never heard of the Flexner report. Me before. neither. Yep. So I'm not alone. I mean, honestly, yeah. I never heard of this before. And the impact has had on uh, this is the section on uh, this is a section on healthcare and yep. about inequities in health professionals and diversifying the health health delivery uh, health workforce in America. Yeah. And I never heard of the impact that this report, which ostensibly, as I understand it, um, you know, was about trying to improve quality of healthcare in America, but had this outrageous consequence yeah. of essentially pull, pulling the rug out from uh, uh, education, healthcare, health professional education in black communities. And mm -hmm. it was shocking. And when we talk about, when people talk about the sort of, you know, sort of structural racism, to me is one of those just like really important examples that had an incredible impact in the 20th yep. century America of mm -hmm. not just like the health outcomes for blacks and black black communities but also their their you know economic opportunity yep. 
uh, also because as we know in the 20th century, it's one of the uh, most well compensated and uh, you know, so it's a, a path to affluence is you know, education and especially education in the health sciences where people pay a premium for those services. You can do, you know, you can do really well. So it's just had yep. this enormous impacts. Um, and it was this report that I'd never heard of in my entire life. Yeah. It's so funny. You mentioned that that's one of the statistics that really shocked me in the book um, for, to kind of give people context around just how much was lost. Essentially this report was constructed to, as you mentioned, kind of improve healthcare quality but what it ended up doing was actually cementing healthcare hierarchy. So as you all know, right, there's the doctors and there's the nurses, right? That hierarchy really came out of this report. And so what Dr. McLemore talks about is the fact that this simultaneously created a hierarchy within the medical and healthcare profession, while also being used as a measure to eliminate schools that weren't essentially abiding by that hierarchy. And so what that led to was the closing of multiple minority serving and black serving institutions that if we actually were to do the math, according to Dr. McLemore, we would have had 200,000 more black physicians today had those schools not closed. And when you think about that, that's insane. insane. <laughs> right? like, yeah. It's really crazy because we're living right now in a time where we know COVID-19 is disproportionately affecting black communities. Imagine if we had 200,000 more black physicians. We already know that black physicians already will serve their own communities at a higher rate than other races. And so we're losing out on not just individuals who can get more economic opportunity out of being physicians in an entire generation that would have been influenced by that, but we're also losing out on quality healthcare, right? Like there's a lot of evidence that suggests that black patients are maltreated or yeah. um, mistreated rather in the healthcare space. And so I think even Dr. Tressie McMillan Cotton has a episode with uh, Red Tape We'll talk with the um, with Jada Smith and her daughter yeah. and her um, mother, right? Where she talks about how black men, in particular, this is something you see later on in the wellness chapters, are treated in a way that sort of dehumanizes them. Especially if you think about color, right? Like the color of someone's skin or how dark they are. That also impacts how maternal infant health is administered. And so, I think that the Flexner report is like the, the, the ramifications of the Flexner Report is something that I have never heard before and I'm really excited for other people to hear about it as well. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we can find some actual solutions to sort of diversifying the healthcare force. I believe that Dr. McLemore talks about the fact that we need to touch base at HBCUs. HBCUs are catalysts for kind of creating this, this new like generation of black physicians and black healthcare workers. Yeah. But more importantly, we need to make sure that the resources that we're giving to these different healthcare professions are not just being concentrated amongst those who are in medicine because nurses, as we know, and yeah. Dr. McLemore is a nursing researcher and a nurse are very much the backbone of the healthcare system. Yeah. And we've sort of, in fact, in both cases, and, and look, I'm pro, I'm, you know, very, very pro immigration, as you know, and, uh, but we've, we've essentially sol tried to solve that problem through immigration. So we, yes. you know, we import amazingly talented doctors from, you know, the subcontinent, India and Pakistan and the Middle East and elsewhere, uh, nurses from everywhere, including especially from Africa and Latin America, mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'll, I'm like, I want, I always, I always want, you know, more, uh, you know, more immigrants. So it's, uh, so it's good, but it is in fact true that we, I, I don't know. I don't know. There are, there are, there have been enough uh, things done to the black and minority communities in America that I don't know whether the Flexner report, for example, was 
done with malintent or not. I just don't know. I, I just learned about it. So I don't know enough about it uh, to know for sure. But it is one of those things that is just, that it was, to me, it wasn't that the, the identification of, uh, you know, if, if these were substandard institutions that were in Black communities, there wasn't the effort, which I think she talks about. And when she talks about the, her third recommendation of investment in those communities, right? right it was, the, the, the response wasn't to try to improve them. It was to shut them down. It wasn't, well, we need to direct more resources right. and, and try to uh, elevate if that's the, in, case, in fact, the case. It wasn't, the, you mm-hmm. know, so, to me, it was more the response to it, even than, you know, than the report itself, when clearly mm-hmm. what should have been done was to direct more resources and help and to, you know, right. elevate health outcomes and health right. uh, talent, uh, right. you know. So I don't, like I said, I don't know whether it was the the intention, but certainly the consequence was just devastating. Yeah. I think according to Dr. McLemore's essay, she talks a little bit about the context of the time, right? It was 1910. So we can assume a couple things about, you know, how people were feeling towards black and brown folks at the time. But that being said, again, the consequences are detrimental. We're still feeling it today. And so her solutions are very much targeted at how do we sort of reverse the effects of the Flexner report and how it impacted Black communities um, for the long term? Yeah. What about, um, you know, there, 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 you know there's, there's a lot in there, both in the e- in economic and uh, technology sections on future of work. Um, yeah. How that impacts, uh, especially in the Black communities. Can you t- 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 tell me like what your, some of your thoughts on those areas too? Yeah, so it's very interesting you asked me this because my research interest as a PhD student is on the future of work. And so I was really happy to include some of these thoughts um, in the book. And so one of the first essays that really gets at this is Dr. Kristen Brody's essay, where she talks about how the future of work depends on HBCUs. For those who don't know what HBCUs are, historically Black colleges and universities. They're also the top producer of college graduates who identify as Black. And so think about that, right? Like if the Black workforce plays a substantial role in the labor force, then it's really important that HBCUs be funded uh, with everything that they need to ensure that that workforce that's coming out of those institutions are as equipped as possible to then make a significant impact on our labor force and therefore our economy. So I think her solutions are really targeted at how do we prepare students in the classroom for the work that's coming and, you know, the next few decades where it's going to be heavily technological, heavily dependent on coding, heavily dependent on big data. But she also talks about how these larger structural um, investments in the actual institutions themselves are absolutely necessary to propel this forward. And so I really, really love her essays. Like one of my favorite essays in the book, um, mainly because, you know, I'm, I'm a really good friend with her. But the other thing, too, is that she, she makes a really great case for an institution that already exists. It's really about like throwing more money at it and making sure that that money is invested right into the students and developing them to be the future leaders of tomorrow. Um, I would say the technology section also gets at this. So Dr. Brandeis Marshall's essay, she's actually going to be part of a virtual event with the Urban Institute um, on February 11th. So feel free to tune in if you'd like. But essentially, she talks about how Black folks actually have to be prepared for what's coming in the future. And so she says, you know, it's not enough to just be, you know, familiar with how to use a computer or familiar how to use or how to access the internet. You have to understand sort of how these algorithms are constructed. You have to have some level of digital smarts when it comes to approaching the digital space. And so similar to street smarts, similar to book smarts, you have to be prepared for the digital age that we're entering. And so her essay, in my opinion, is actually targeting the Black community. She's talking directly to the Black community and saying, 
here's what we need to do next. Um, and so I really loved her essay as well because it was a interesting perspective of how to sort of get at this future of work phenomenon that seems inevitable. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I thought it was just just really enlightening. I mean, and uh, and just a just a really cool perspective on yeah. on on how like again, what it, 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 it's a practical response, right? Like there's there's mm-hmm. a lot of but people throw around lots of discussions about you know sort of theoretical kinds of things. Like she's given yep. like very very practical advice on mm-hmm. uh, on how to deal with the world that's coming uh, in front of us. And I just thought that was really, uh, really terrific. That was, you, you remember, um, I mean, like the future of work piece of this and and part of what this book is like, th- this book is about, you know, uh, identifying the pipelines of, it's a lot about a lot of things, but identifying the pipeline of these experts for, yep. for to, to take notice of them and see them and find them and to be able to access their knowledge and guidance and judgment. Um, but you know, I remember when we were working on something together at, a, at the time, but with uh, uh, related to Sadie Collective um, last summer, when you know the the um, the CEO of Wells Fargo was asked about you know the lack of um, black you know uh, bank mm-hmm, you know, in the mm-hmm. blacks in the banking sector, uh, you know whether as economists or traders or or, or whatever. And, and he gave an answer that was sort of a shrugging that, you know, that, well, the pipeline isn't there for it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, um, but no uh, recognition that uh, he has some obligation um, right. to try to, to try to fill the pipeline. So one thing is one of the things yep. I love about Sadie is that it is about filling that pipeline right. of, you know, answering that question with action and giving mm-hmm lots of other people, the opportunity to play a role in helping to, to fill the, mm-hmm. uh, the pipeline too. And I think, that, and that is a future, that is a future of work thing. I mean, that is a, that, right. those are the, sort of the practical kinds of things that people can be doing um, to try to, you know, make sure that that pipeline is filled with the very best uh, from, from every corner of the country to do great things. 100%. I, I, I love that you alluded to that. Um, because once again, I mean, you're just hitting these questions on the head. That's my research interest. So I'm very much interested in thinking about how are we going to usher the next generation of black and brown people into the workforce successfully? And there's different barriers that arise along that pathway that, quite frankly, haven't been empirically studied to the point where, you know, people are citing this data as a reason as to why we are doing it a specific way. I will say that there's a lot of literature in the organizational behavior space that gets at this, but I would argue that there needs to be more data analysis around these topics because they are very serious, right? If you think about, you know, (laughs) who's going to have jobs, right? There's an entire continent, Africa, for example, has the youngest population in the world. No one is talking about that, but it's incredibly important because in about 10 years, they're all going to be at least 25 and be part of the working force. And so we have to find a way to make sure that they actually enter the workforce in a way that doesn't disrupt the entire labor market. And so for me, that's incredibly true. And I think on a more practical level, this book is is sort of paying homage to that, right? It's saying there's no shortage of Black folks who can speak to different issues, but it's really about your intentionality as an institution, as someone with power. Are you going to empower those individuals to then have a voice in your particular space or in your particular institution? Um, and so for me, you know, hearing those <laughs> hearing those comments from the CEO of Well Fargo, I just thought it was yeah. very lazy, right? It's like- It sounded lazy. It, you know. yeah. yeah. It's like, you're saying there's no Black talent, but you also don't recruit at more than one or two HBCUs 
and there's hundreds across the nation. You're you're not trying, right? So it's not like these students don't want to do that. There's a, there's no shortage of individuals that I know in my own personal communities that are black and are interested in Wall Street. No shortage. People are trading stocks and interested in the trading floor, but it's really about presenting folks with those opportunities, those pathways, so that they can get to those gateways in those. Yeah, and really by not and by not finding them, you're doing two things, right? One is right. This, first, as I as I always tell everybody when I talk about uh, the, like these kinds of issues about about recruiting talent, is that like I don't want to take like the middle talented you know, white dude, <laughs> when, yeah, when well, they're like, <laughs> like, they're right there, they're like supremely talented in like yeah. all across, like, oh, I want, I want like the top of all of the, you know, experiences and, and races and demographics and all, but I just want the very best wherever, like wherever mm-hmm. I can find them. If you're saying you're not finding them and you're running an organization you're man, you're making you're making huge mistakes because you are by you know you're by choice by either by negligence or lack of imagination or lack of persistence. You are relegating yep. your organization to let you know to weaker talent, and uh, you know the, and the ones who are making the extra effort to get the best talent are going to beat you. Yep. And that's usually the way. That's usually that's the way. It exactly happens. Right. That's one way. Like you're weakening your organization by not doing yep. taking the extra effort. And secondly, you're not solving the problem either because you're not you're not uh, helping to increase those opportunities and to show models of success where you know really talented people uh, are 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 be, are able to be examples for others in the community. Encourage them right. to go and chase these things uh, because they that, because these are amazing opportunities. You know, my son works in. One of the big, uh, one of the big banks. It's amazing mm-hmm. opportunity. It's really tough, mm-hmm. hard work. It's good, but the, but the pay is good, and and the right. opportunities are great. And um, and you know we should have more people uh, fighting for those. Uh, Why don't we take one last break and come back and uh, dive a little bit more into some other? We, I feel like we, we should, like we could do like seven segments. Uh, we you know, really could. <laughs> yeah. Because there's just so much in the book. I'm like, feeling so like really, yeah. yeah, really, really talking about like one and a half sections of the book. Um, but uh, let's come back after this break. Uh, you're listening good. to HPS Insights. HPS is hiring full time public affairs associates and analysts. We're seeking entry level associates and analysts to join our dynamic team. Associates have immediate client exposure and opportunities for professional development while working in a fun, fast-paced, and challenging environment. Recent graduates or applicants with up to three years of postgraduate work experience are encouraged to apply. Learn more and apply today at hamiltonplacestrategies.com slash careers. And we're back on HPS Insights. Uh, this is Tony Prado. We're discussing um, uh, the Black Agenda. It is a, a wonderful uh, collection of essays on big public policy issues by Black uh, experts, edited by uh, by my great friend Anna Gifty Opaka Ajaman. Um, and uh, Anna, we were talking about you know we talked about some of the areas, and um, I, I feel like you know we could do like like six podcasts. <laughs> uh, breaking down each, like, it's a good you know, idea, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, you know, we'll find we'll find a way over time. We yeah, we definitely will. Yeah, we definitely will find a way to talk about more about more pieces. But what what did, what else did you learn from? Like, what, did you learn as you were going, uh, you know, going through it and and editing these uh, these works and these amazing experts? One hundred percent. And I think it's so funny. Um, you know, the only pushback I got in for putting this book together is like you're a grad student you're in your first year 
why on earth would you do this, right? <laughs> like you, you're taking like the hardest classes you're going to be taking in your next four years or so. And I think for me, it's actually very complimentary, right? So I'm in a public policy program. I'm studying economics at Harvard Kennedy School. Um, and this is sort of an epicenter for a lot of intersections of different studies and um, different um, policy areas that are of high sort of importance and people are really interested in it. So being able to identify the very people I hope to cite as I'm going through my program has been one of the joys of my life. And then being able to then I actually had to edit those essays, by the way. So it's not like, oh, you just submit your essay. We're good. I had yeah. to turn academic language into layman speak. I had to bring academic journal articles down to New York Times op-ed types of language. And that in and of itself was a skill that I was able to flex a little bit. Um, and I think I did a pretty good job, according to, you know, those who were contributing to the book, as well as my co-editor on this, who was um, in the publishing house, Hannah McGrady. And so that being said, I learned quite a bit from it. Um, the section that I think many people are going to learn a lot from is the criminal justice section. So I think a lot of us have had sort of a, a lot of different types of information about the criminal justice situation in America and, you know, the context that sort of fuels it. But I think what I love about that section is that it just lays out the facts. <laughs> like there are just a lot of facts. I was putting together Tons sort of, of facts. Yeah, it's right. jam-packed with facts. It's yeah. Jam-packed with facts. And yeah. some of those facts are just numbers. And those numbers are staggering, right? And so one thing I like to mention here is that, for example, um, and this is actually in the climate chapter, but it alludes to the criminal justice chapter. There's about 589 federal and state prisons that sit next to a super dump, meaning that, or super fund dump, excuse me, meaning that these are dump sites where environmentally toxic waste is abundant, mm -hmm. right? So think about it. There's folks who are in prison right now who have to breathe, like the only air they can breathe is coming from, you know, a waste dump right next to the facility. And so I think when you think about that, um, it just puts a lot of things in perspective. And then you go to the criminal justice chapter and they kind of have a couple solutions, some of which you may agree with or may not agree with. But they all tie into this fact of the fact the, the fact of the matter is that black and brown people are being disproportionately incarcerated. There needs to be another way to hold people accountable that doesn't dehumanize them while also put our planet in danger. Right. And so I think that that for me is something that I didn't really even know that there was a tie between the climate section and the criminal justice section, excuse me. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was the wellness chapter. So in the, that chapter, we have an essay about mental health. Um, one of my favorite essays in that chapter is actually from a friend of mine, Tinu Abiyemi Paul, who writes about the diary of a Black disabled woman. And oh, yeah. I thought that was a really powerful essay. Very um, powerful. It's, it's clear, seriously, yes. one of my, yeah, again, like it's, just- a, It's just so a, good. So and good. It's so, yeah. it, it makes so much sense, right? But that actually ties to the Black Women Best essay, excuse me, that Janelle Jones and Angela Hanks put together, which talks about, you know, targeting policies at Black women as a way to move our country forward is actually a really, really good proxy for progress. And so when you look at Tinu's essay in light of that, they're complementary, right? Tinu's saying, look, we got to construct workplace policies in light of people who are not just marginalized on the disabled spectrum, but they're also marginalized with respect to their race, gender, sexuality, and the like. And so I, I love that, you know, none of these people talk to each other, but all of their essays kind of come together. And it kind of talks about, to like the bigger point that Black experts are operating basically from the same context, right? They, they see the problem 
together as this one thing or a couple different things. Um, but ultimately, the solutions are where things differ slightly, but those solutions are oftentimes complementary. And so it's not enough just to do one of the solutions, but it's also important to do one of those solutions in light of another. And so for me, that's sort of how I've learned quite a bit from the individuals in this book. Absolutely. So two things on based on what you based on what you just said too that I that were that I, in fact I made notes on them when I was uh, when I was reading through was one is that when you said uh, you you may or may or may not agree or disagree with uh, the the recommendations on on civil justice reforms. So you can say this about the whole book, right? Like yes. the book is presented with like lots of ideas, first right. observations and facts and context mm-hmm. and recommendations, any of which you may except for. The, the facts and especially the data right, right. that uh, you should accept, but you know, that you can have different views on it. Like it is a, it is a very thought provoking book that you don't, you may, you may or may not agree or disagree. What you will right. get though, is an understanding of the perspective of exactly where right. the communities that are impacted of how they see and think about uh, these yep. things. The second observation yep. uh, that you just hit on also is just the interconnectedness of so many of these things. And I was, you know, mm-hmm. you, you kind of know that, you know, if, um, you know, if, if zip code is, you know, your, is fate, right? Mm-hmm. Like where you live, like, so we were talking about climate. It's yep. Like, that was Dr. Marshall. Disproportionate. Yeah. Because, mm-hmm. you know, white people moved out into certain yep. communities, black people moved yep. in, those communities tended to be closer to water, right? And mm-hmm. where they end up uh, being susceptible to, whether it's you know hurricanes or other kinds of, uh, mm-hmm. um, then because uh, you know they're uh, they're connected, economic opportunities were not uh, provided in those communities. There were things like redlining on insurance and mm-hmm. uh, housing finance and uh, the the uh, resources available for education. So now we're talking about education uh, in those mm-hmm. uh, in those communities. So all of these things, like there is so much interconnected. Uh, you know, on all of them. And I think it, like that, it, it, it is, uh, it is great that you capture so many of them in one read, right. like you can read <laughs> just read through this and see all of these yeah. uh, connections and networks that you may not have thought about uh, before. Yeah, 100%. I absolutely agree with that. For example, as you mentioned, Dr. Marshall Shepard's essay talks about redlining and talks about how zip code really matters in terms of even the kind of temperatures you're experiencing within your given neighborhood and how that's directly tied to your wealth ability and whether or not you have generational wealth. And then you go to the public policy chapter where Cliff Albright, who is very well known as one of the co-founders of Black Voters Matter, talks about how those same issues are also tied to voting, right? And so it's like, you're seeing kind of the interconnectedness and that's kind of the point, right? It's, It's more so, I would say, a black agenda because we don't have all the different perspectives but there's a really really great job of covering a broad spectrum of ideas that you then find kind of fit like puzzle pieces with one another and it's like oh wait if we you know deal with this redlining issue or we deal with this you know disinvestment issue that actually impacts voting rights and if we you know deal with voting rights that impacts you know the kinds that kids get to go to etc um one of my favorite essays in the entire actually this i think it is my favorite essay i'm not supposed to have a favorite I do. (laughs) Um, In the entire book is by Dr. Lauren Mims. She is a psychologist, but she also was one of the, um, uh, she was part of the Obama administration's initiative to promote African-American excellence in education. And so Mm -hmm. she wrote a essay about how she administered a program with black girls 
Some of them came from different types of circumstances. And every time I read it, I cry. <laughs> like literally every time I read it, I cry. Because what she kind of depicts right there is how a lot of these structural issues are internalized and then projected. And yeah. she kind of uses that as a backdrop for why she advocates for Black girls being sort of a proxy for progress in the classroom. A lot of times, Black folks, especially younger Black folks, have to deal with different types of trauma um, that's impacted by structural factors. And so those structural factors are ultimately outlined in this book, but you'll see in the education chapter in particular, it is impacting people, right? It's like impacting real people and people at a very young age. And it's really, really important that these structural factors be administered or addressed in a way that really, at the end of the day, centers the humanity of Black people. That's ultimately what the Black agenda is aiming to do. It is making a case for the humanity of Black people. Well, I think I think it goes just a long, long way in accomplishing and achieving that. And uh, it's just it's such it's a terrific read. I recommend it to everyone. I, I appreciate you uh, being able to come on and spend time with us to talk about it. I'm so excited about the book being released. Uh, as a reminder, you can find it on uh, all of the, all of your digital uh, book uh, outlets. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to have, I'm not going to pick favorites on them, but they're all there and you should, uh, I, I recommend everyone who's interested in these issues. I should really just go get it. It's called the black experience. Um, Anna Gifty, thanks so much for spending time with us uh, today. And we, you, we, you will be back. So. Uh, yes, I will. I will. It is also black history month. So it is be yeah. sure to support a black bookstore if you can. That's a great point. I'm so glad you got that pitch in. Absolutely, uh, support uh, support black bookstores in your in your community. Get out and find them. Excellent. Thank you so much, Tony. Thanks, Anna. Thank you for listening to the HPS Insights podcast, produced by Hamilton Place Strategies. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at HPS Insights and follow us on the web at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com. dot